Hello and welcome into another Sideline Guys powered by GameBridge alongside Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. We've been fortunate early in the season to have been joined by a couple of great guests. We started off the podcast season with the head coach Rick Carlisle. We were joined last week by Renick Bowman, who's the City Edition designer. Quick little tease. We're hopeful to have a couple cool guests coming up within the next few weeks but JJ to be honest with you I'm kind of glad we don't have one this week because there's a whole lot to talk about and I want to make sure we get to everything and I guess I'll just start here a little bit bigger picture when you and I were recording the podcast last week uh, I was looking forward at the schedule for the next week plus or so since the next time we talk in this format and saying well you've got home against the jazz which you know, always kind of a pesky team. And then you've got three straight games against two of what might be the top three teams in the Eastern Conference, Milwaukee, and then two straight against Philadelphia. Two of them are on the road. I thought that Jazz game was really important to kind of set the foundation, but I looked at it as one where, you know, you really have to come ready or this four game stretch could put you in a bad spot, could kind of set you a little bit behind the eight ball. Not only did it not set the Pacers behind the eight ball, but they went three and one in it. Uh, They overall had just, I think, a really terrific last eight days or so since we've last talked. And, And really to go two and one against Philadelphia for two in Philadelphia and the one against Milwaukee, I think really is a result of the growth that you've seen from this group. You're talking two of the three top teams in the East last year, and you've got a winning record against them. Yeah, I, I look forward to this podcast just because what happened last night is fresh in my mind. I'm still buzzing a little bit from what we saw, not just last night, as you mentioned, but really over the last week. It was it was great to see the Pacers finish off that homestand with a four and one record. When you consider one of the games that the one game you lost is probably the one that everyone expected you should win and to bounce back from that disappointment uh, and get the win against the bucks and then to go to Philadelphia. And I think it was logical to think that you could split when you're playing one of those two game series. Sometimes it just feels like that there is a little bit of back and forth. However, uh, the Pacers played two really good games. There was no, To me, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say all-around games because defensively there were some issues on Sunday. But when I look back at Sunday, it was the Sixers playing as well as they could have, and they still had to fight until the end to put the Pacers away. So I wasn't that uh, disappointed. I wasn't that worried after that game. And I was very confident going into Tuesday's game because I knew how focused the players were on – getting a little bit of a bounce back, the importance of the in-season tournament, and also I knew how they were trying to make some adjustments to Sunday's game. So in general, it has been a good week in Pacer land. Uh, It was great to have Rennick on our podcast last week. I think that uh, received good reviews. And if you did not get a chance to listen to that, maybe you want to skip past the first part because it's not as topical uh, at this point. But the second half of that podcast, when we had Rennick on, is is timeless. So if you're doing any traveling over the uh, Thanksgiving holiday coming up and you need an extra 20 or 30 minutes, go back and listen to what Rennick had to say, because I think you can learn a lot. It just makes you feel good, I think. And I would say watching the Pacers also is making people feel good right now as well. Yeah, I mean, you look at where they are 11 games through and you've played six of those 11 games against top four teams in the East last year. 
I want to kind of close the podcast out once we get there talking about this future schedule, because I do feel like the next two plus weeks could be a prime, a massive opportunity for the Pacers. This is a podcast, though, that, you know, sometimes we have a show and it feels like, you know, we're searching for what the headlines are. And there's a few here that just jump out that could be the number one headline in any week, the in-season tournament, uh, you know, the two games against Philadelphia. Let, let's just start, though, with Tyrese Halliburton and what you saw from him for, from those two games in Philadelphia. And and look, these are things we actually have seen from him before, which is just absurd. Um, but you can't take it for granted. You can't take for granted the fact that he's doing this at 23 years old. You go in against the league's seventh-ranked defense, I think will be potentially even a top-five defense Philadelphia by the time the season ends, and you have 58 points, 32 assists, and zero turnovers. It's almost incomprehensible for a guy like Chris Paul or for, or for some of the very best who have ever done it this is a 23-year-old who's still on his rookie contract. I mean, for me, sometimes it's so easy to forget that. You were obviously there in person. And we've seen stretches like this before. I, you know, I wanted to make note in a tweet that I had that Halliburton actually owns the NBA record for 40 assists without a turnover over a three-game stretch last year. Um, but, I, I mean, you're just seeing video game stuff from him. And I'm wondering what your takeaways were watching it all unfold in person. I don't know about you, Pat, but when I was playing double dribble as a kid, I threw the ball away a lot. Tecmo basketball on Nintendo, there were a lot of bad passes. So I could not do this in a video game. I could not pass the ball <laughs> like Tyrese Halliburton does without committing turnovers. Some words that I'll use right now to describe the way he's playing. He's confident. There's never been an issue with confidence. But I do think he also is confident in his teammates. He's in complete control of these games, and he craves the moment, the clutch time. There's just a look in his eye and the way he is carrying himself coming in and out of timeouts on the court in those moments with one or two minutes to play. Let's take, for instance, last night. He was six for eight from outside the three-point arc in the first half. So obviously Nick Nurse and company – they're going to try to make sure he doesn't get good looks outside the arc. Pat, Patrick Beverly was guarding him throughout. We know there's a little bit of a pass there with Tyrese and Pat Bev. And it was more <laughs> difficult for Tyrese to get open looks from outside the arc. So he had not made a three until a minute and change left. And he, and he creates some separation. <laughs> he got away from Beverly and I, the point Beverly knew he was beat, he just ran to the paint. Now, maybe there was a switch that should have happened a little bit sooner, but I don't think he wanted to be in the picture. And Tyrese just calmly knocked that down. And there was zero doubt in my mind when he let it go that that, was, that, that shot was going in. And it's just the way he uh, is executing late in games and the assist and turnover ratio. We need to do some research into what the season-long assisted turnover ratio record is. Because the numbers he's putting up right now, he's going to blow that out of the water. When you have a stretch of 33 and zero, I feel like a, a really good number is like four or five, right? I mean, if you have a, a four oh, to one, great. it's just, yeah. yeah. So I, it's not a number that I look at a lot. Um, so it's not like I know what a, you know, a 40% three-point shooter is where you want to be. Uh, so would it be fair to say if you're 
anywhere in the high twos to threes, you're you're doing well. You're doing well, and as I look at it right now, he's six thirty-three to zero. He's gonna he's gonna boost that average to the point <laughs> that even if he has a uh, you know two or three turnover game, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> yeah, he if he has a turnover to start his next game, he'll be uh, at a paltry what thirty-two to one assist <laughs> to turnover over that stretch. He's six to one though on the season. I mean, it, it's okay. just <laughs> absurd. Um, and, you know, shout out Pacers Reddit. I don't know that we've done that enough here this year, but I was actually just kind of going through and, and I like to go on there from time to time and just kind of get the pulse of the fan. And look, these are diehards. And so oftentimes, you know, the opinions of any fan bases, diehards can be uh, a little on the dramatic side at times. And somebody made the comment yesterday, uh, something along the lines of national media won't say it, but Tyrese Halliburton has been a top five player in the NBA to start the season. And it kind of caught my eye because I was wondering, is that true or is that fandom exaggeration? And it feels like it's close to true, right? But I actually hadn't sat down and looked at the numbers. And this, by the way, this is an impossible task because you've got guys like Jokic who play totally different and Embiid who play totally different. And how do you value defense? And look, I think Tyrese will be the first one to tell you that defensively he's not where he needs to be. And let's be clear here, a lot of positive stuff going on. The Pacers defensively are not where they need to be probably by the end of the season. And that's still very much a work in progress and very much an important dynamic to where they can finish this season. But there are a couple of stats that help describe this and they're all imperfect, but they attempt to take everything you do together to kind of compile it into one. And one of those is the player uh, efficiency. And the other one is PIE. They both work pretty similarly in terms of trying to get an all encompassing number to describe what a player has done so far to start the season. Well, in the player efficiency ranking, he's been the fourth best player in the league this year. And by PIE, he's been fifth. So according to those two unbiased statistical metrics, he's right there. And, you know, he's been he was so good last year. He was an all star. And to me, you know, could he take even another step? I thought was was a fascinating question. And to be honest, um, not to disparage him or anything, but like he's already put himself in pretty rarefied air. And if last year was about where you know, he's going to be for the rest of his career. That's a fantastic result for the Pacers. But you're seeing some signs here of a guy that's potentially playing at an elite um, or superstar level. And that that just bodes so well for what the Pacers can potentially accomplish in years in the future. And there was this Ringer article that came out a couple days ago, which, by the way, Uh, Shout out to Rob. Uh, One of my biggest takeaways from that article was just how good of a writer Rob was. I don't think I fully realized it until, um, you know, I read the whole thing and I thought it was a great spotlight for Tyrese and for the organization as well. Um, And and, you know, he's playing right now about as well as you possibly could have hoped and maybe even a little better than you realistically could have hoped. And again, we're 11 games into the season. Can he keep it up over the course of a long season? We'll see. Um, but your best player playing like a top five guy in the league, especially from a Pacers perspective, you know, where the Pacers haven't had many superstar type conversation players. I think it's it's remarkably exciting. Yeah, I think that uh, it's tough to to say top five or then also have the discussion about most valuable. I have no doubt about 
because, you know, Summit just feels like excellent stats, outstanding play. But then if you take that player off the team, what will the impact be? To where I would skew the Halliburton discussion should move into this, the, the MVP discussion. It is not premature. It is not a hometown bias to say that if the Pacers can be top three, top four in the Eastern Conference all season long, that Tyrese Halliburton will deserve any top three or four most valuable player discussion. Because we we saw the one game that he did not play. Obviously, that was against the Boston Celtics. We saw all of last season, the second half of the season, without Tyrese Halliburton. This is, with all credit to the rest of the players on the Pacers, this is not meant to disparage them in any way. But the way the Pacers are built right now, I have a hard time thinking that there are too many players in the league that are more valuable to their team than Tyrese Halliburton. And and let's go back to this as well. With, with what you were saying about his analytical numbers and the statistics and the discussion about top five, he's played 10 games this season. And I remember pretty distinctly, he was a little bit disgusted after the Cavs game, which was game number two. And then there was another game the following week where I think it was a walk-off interview or maybe it was at practice, but he called his own performance or maybe just shooting trash. So I, I, I thought he was being hard on himself, but that's the, the standard that he holds himself to. He would maybe go back and look at this 10 game sample size. And he would say he did not get off to a good start yet. Still with that happening. And yeah. I don't, I don't even put that label on, on the start. I thought that he was, getting his teammates involved, the shooting percentage you knew would come if that was the only error, or the, the thing that was below uh, expectation level, it was something that bothered him. And now you see where he is the last six to seven games that he's played. And it is phenomenal. And, and you know, one thing I asked him about last night, and I even, it was something that I thought about after Sunday night's game, because I did not realize sometimes when you're watching and it's a close game, I think he's probably the same way. You don't realize the numbers are what they are until a game concludes. And you're sitting there thinking about how the team can defend Maxi and Embiid better and the rebounding was such an issue on Sunday. But then doing that postgame show, looking down and seeing 25-17-0 on Sunday. And I said to Eddie Gill, I said, you know, this – this is not something we should gloss over or just take for granted. This is remarkable. Right. And then to, to, to basically go one better, what, you had 33, 15, 33 points, 15 assists, or 13 assists on? Uh, he had 15 assists. Yeah, yeah, 15 assists. So I would say to do one better, let's say that, because the scoring was up, the assists were basically the same, and the turnovers yeah. were perfect. To have that ball in your hands so much, he played almost 40 minutes, I believe. He played the entire fourth quarter. And to play a style that I wouldn't say is risky, but it's aggressive. So mm-hmm. the, this is not a streak or a stretch of, of minutes without a turnover that is comparable to I was having this discussion on the bus last night. It's not Russell Wilson throwing five-yard passes. Right. Making this, making the, the 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 dump off pass and having a long streak of 
you know, passes without an interception. I mean, these are some high degree of difficulty passes. <laughs> the way he has the ball in his hands and is going full speed. Think of how many times when he goes to the basket, if you make one false step, maybe you have a travel. Maybe you could carry the ball. Maybe you're whipping it across the court and it just goes out of the outstretched arms of your teammate. All those would be turnovers. Yet, zero. I mean, this is just some kind of a pace that we really need to recognize and appreciate. Yeah, I mean, there are guards out there, which, by the way, I don't mean this as any sort of diss. There are guards out there that put together high assist-to-turnover ratios because they don't take a lot of risks, and they don't turn the ball over. Tyus Jones immediately won, you know, maybe like a Corey Joseph from back in the day. And these guys are valuable. This is, you know, not meant to be putting any of that down. Guys who can take care of the ball are extremely valuable. There was a whole section of it on the Ringer article. The It's an outlet pass, but it's it's almost, that's almost not even doing it enough justice because he'll throw some of these passes. I mean, he had one to Toppin yeah. on Tuesday <laughs> in Philadelphia. That was what? You were there, a 60-foot yeah. pass? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so you're not talking about I'm going to run to a guy. Football, that's like throwing into triple coverage and hoping <laughs> it not only doesn't get fall incomplete, but it actually is completed for a touchdown, and, and that's what he did. Yeah, yeah, and, and and so this isn't a guy that's, you know, running the ball over to a stationary shooter, handing it off to him and then continuing to run. These are high degree of difficulty passes. I mean, some of these numbers – you're right. I also, by the way, can't play video games at this level. So maybe it's like uh, Pacers gaming 2K league type of player <laughs> numbers because I also am not capable of this or anything close to it. Um, but it, it's just so amazing because and the Pacers know this well, right? Like Mark Jackson is one of the better passers in NBA history going into a couple of years ago. You probably would have said he was the best pure point guard um, the NBA Pacers have ever had. And I think like he topped eight a couple of times and you look at some of the other best passers in the league, you know, like how good is Darius Garland and, and he's around eight assists per game. We're talking about a guy right now at 13, like the difference between eight and three per game, which everybody can get three, uh, is the difference between eight and 13. It's just it's so incredible. And the numbers are, you know, they're almost laughable what he's capable of doing. And look, it's not to suggest other guys haven't been in that category. You know, Chris Paul has been there for years. Uh, a previous version of James Harden has been there. Um, but what he's doing at this age, I think, is just incredible. And, and I came into the season with – the way I would describe my hopes for the Pacers was cautious optimism that they'd be a playoff team. I thought they could get there. I still think, obviously, they can get there. I'm starting to lose in a positive way um, some of that – Caution. Now, we're still only 11 games into the season, but the biggest reason for that is the play of Tyrese Halliburton. And, and perhaps more significantly, the 10 games that you've played with Halliburton, you've gone seven and three, which is great. Now, a lot of those have been at home, um, but you played, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, a pretty tough level of competition, which is going to decrease here in the next couple of weeks. Um, but you're seven and three. And in those three losses, I'm not going to be the guy that sits there and goes, well, you hit a shot here and you hit a shot there and you're nine, one or 10 and zero. No, because the Pacers have also had a couple of these that they pulled out, you know, at the very end, uh, you know, in, in an unlikely fashion, Cleveland, Milwaukee, uh, but you've been in all three of them. And the worst game of the 10 
against Philadelphia, you still overcame a 19-point deficit and had a fourth-quarter lead. The offense is just relentless. And as long as the offense is going to be this relentless, they're going to need their defense to step up, absolutely. But as long as the offense is this relentless, they're going to give themselves a chance, I think, to win almost all of these games. And that's so important because over the course of a season, you're going to pull out some, you're going to lose some. But if you're in most, if not all of them, you're going to really like, I think, where you are at the end of the year. Now, I will also say, if you came into this season and you said to me, what are the two biggest areas they need to improve in from a team perspective? Well, uh, one obvious, they need to do better when they don't have Halliburton. And to be fair to the flip side of this, and the reason why I think you know, there, there still is maybe a touch of caution in what is becoming overwhelming optimism for me is because the only game you didn't get to see him, things went really poorly. Now, extreme example, at Boston, that's as tough of a game as you're going to play all year. And the other would have been defensively. And right now you're sitting at 28th, and your offense has just been so absurdly good. Like, two points better per 100 possessions than the second best team in the league, so absurdly good. Best offense, if they were to finish the season with this ranking in NBA history, good. Some of that's pace. Um, that it's it's masked some of those a little bit. I do think defensively and playing without Tyrese Halliburton are still big keys to this season going forward because hopefully you have tied for 81, but I think realistically you probably don't. Hopefully your offense can keep playing at this just sensational pace, but realistically it might come back a little bit. So I do think those two things are still very important areas to improve upon and areas they're going to need to improve upon. Uh, but end of the day, as long as you've got Tyrese Halliburton healthy um, and you're playing anywhere near this level, I mean, I think you're certainly on track to accomplish the goals that you want to even 10, 11 games into the season. I feel comfortable saying that. I'd agree, Pat. And I do think we know the in-season tournament implications and what that win last night could mean next week and on into potential knockout stage and and a place that I think would be really good for this franchise to get to, to get on that stage in that spotlight in that knockout round would be very beneficial to the franchise, to the players, uh, just the experience you would gain. So that win against Philadelphia is going to go a long way towards helping a lot of things perhaps happen. But I also think it's going to be the, the kind of game that could be a turning point for a couple of other areas, defense and rebounding. And you'll look at the box score and the scoreboard and say, yeah, you gave up over 120 again and blah, 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 blah. But. They were really trying the first 10 games to stay true to their principles. They're trying to change their defensive philosophy. And they made some adjustments heading into the second Philadelphia game that I think can help them in that in a game, if you're having a situation where two people are really hurting you or someone is attacking the basket with regularity and you're having a hard time with your base defense defending, you can go back to the way you slowed Maxi down a little bit in the rematch. Now, you don't want to do that all the time because, again, as Rick Carlisle said, this is a season about attention to details. And, and what happened when they switched a lot and offered help 
last season was they left wide open three pointers. So against the team with a lot of shooters, you just don't want to do that. The thought is you'd rather give up two than three, but you can't give up the easy twos. And that's what we saw a little bit against Charlotte. You saw it a lot against Philadelphia on Sunday. And so they provided a little bit of help. You'll read some articles and hear some of the comments about help at the nail. So they're bringing guys into the, the elbow or the free throw line to stop that drive to the basket when a guy like Maxi has been able to beat his man with, with help from the pick and roll. But you weren't, you know, DeAnthony Melton was a guy that benefited. He had a lot of open threes because there was some help provided. So you saw some of the breakdowns that can happen if you provide too much help. But I do think that that game is is something that they can put back in their toolbox a little bit and they can use that down the road in a situation they need it. They also, the coaching staff emphasized rebounding. How could you not with what you saw on Sunday? And it's one thing for a staff to say to the guards, you have to get down and help on the glass. That's still most guards, not one of the three or four things that they do best. That's a priority for them. But you could always go back to this game now and say, look what happened when you did get in there and help get rebounds. And I, I, we don't need to spend all of our podcast talking about Tyrese Halliburton, but the way he rebounded on Tuesday, I'm not sure I want him needing to get that many rebounds on a regular basis because he do, does so many other things and I don't want him worn out and running out of gas. But when a team is beating you on the glass, getting second chance points, you can always go back to this game, the rematch against Philadelphia and say, see what happens when we focus on this and it's it's validation for what a coaching staff tells you that then it worked. And so I, that's why it's such a potentially, I don't know if I want a season changing or season altering is too big of a stretch, but I really, this is a game you can, you can draw on the experience and it can help you in January when you're uh, in LA or Denver or Phoenix, you can go back and say, Hey, remember, in a difficult environment against two guys playing at all-star level without question and the reigning MVP. Look, you remember what we did that night? Let's go back and try that a little bit. Let's remind everyone of the importance of grabbing those rebounds and blocking out on the weak side. And then the light bulb goes off. And if you're in a tough situation on the road again, you just try to replicate that. It may be hard to replicate 33 assists and zero turnovers over a two-game stretch, but you can replicate blocking out and getting rebounds and, and helping your man, but making sure uh, that someone else gets back to help the open guy outside the arc. Yeah, and I think it's a fascinating push-pull, too, of obviously blocking out better was much better on Tuesday, and that, you know, is just a, a finite matter. But it's a it's an interesting push-pull to me, too, of the Pacers are so eager to get out, out in transition, and they're so good when they get in transition that – you naturally see those guys start to leak out when the ball comes up. And if you grab that rebound and you do that, the Pacers have been lethal. You know, how much, how much do you crash the glass versus leaking out? Um, and as it relates to, you know, some of the, the defensive challenges, um, you know, how much do you help versus not help? And I, I think probably playing against, Embiid and Giannis back-to-back was maybe helpful to kind of get to see a couple different scenarios too uh, because those are guys that 
you probably do need to have to help more against. And the Pacers did a fantastic job down the stretch when it really mattered against Giannis, and they did it well enough. Uh, game two against Philadelphia. And so, yes, I, I agree with you. I think, I, I think there's some nuance in there and I think that's, you know, kind of finding the push pull of what makes the most sense. And, and you're still tinkering a little bit with it. And, and I think you had a couple of games here where you had some chances to try some new things because there were, you know, maybe the top two players in the Eastern conference that you went against this past week. Plus, um, so I think that's valuable. You touched on the in-season tournament. I want to make sure we talk about that here because the Pacers are in both a great but also a fascinating position. And I know as I tweeted about it, I got a lot of people asking questions about it. It's still brand new. It's still a little convoluted. And so I want to make sure uh, that we both talk about it and have a chance to go through the scenarios here. So I had some time. This is one of the benefits of not being at the game, uh, which, you know, the benefits of being there outweigh the benefits of not being there. But sometimes I've got the opportunity to go deep down in a rabbit hole when I'm sitting in the studio that you wouldn't be able to uh, sitting courtside or near courtside. And so I kind of went into a deep rabbit hole in the in-season tournament, especially when it was looking like it might be possible that the Pacers and Hawks would win. And the Pacers are in a fascinating scenario to me. And I think some of it is because there's there's probably a lot of people listening here who I love the World Cup. I don't watch a ton of soccer, but I love the World Cup. And in the World Cup, you're in a group of four teams. And if you can finish uh, in the top two, you advance. And so at least for me mentally, you know, there, that's kind of put a baseline down of if you play pretty well in your group, you're going to move on. And I think the biggest difference for those who watch the World Cup and otherwise don't have a lot of experience with group play type dynamics like this is in the World Cup. You go from 32 teams in the group to a 16-team knockout stage, and in this, you're going from 30 to eight. So you don't you don't need to play well in your group to advance. You need to play really well. The margin for error is very very low. If you lose two games, you're definitely out. There's almost no way uh, to advance and and lose two games. And so the Pacers are in this scenario now where. They're going to go into Atlanta in a, in a handful of days whenever you're listening to this. And if they win that game in Atlanta, they will clinch the group with a game still left on the in-season tournament schedule, which is kind of mind-boggling if you think of it. But the Pacers will have delivered all of those other three teams, Atlanta, Cleveland, and Philadelphia, lost, which means they'll also tie-break against those teams. And Detroit has already lost twice. So you've got an incredibly important in-season tournament game coming up Tuesday. It's good. We aren't going to be able to talk about it here um, on, on this podcast until it's over. If you win that game, not only do you win uh, your group, but you've got a, a decent chance at hosting a knockout round game, which I think, you know, would be awesome. There'd be a ton of spotlight. It would potentially be in Gainbridge Fieldhouse. The flip side of that, and here's how important this game is, is if you lose in Atlanta, you're you're really battling uphill just to make it to the knockout round. Because to win the group, you would then need to beat Detroit, and you would need um, Atlanta to lose both of their games, their final two games, which are against Philadelphia and against Cleveland. So it could happen, but you need all three of those things to happen to be able to win your group. And then otherwise you're reliant on one wild card spot. If you go three and one, and that's going to be difficult because there's going to be other three and one teams. So I don't know that I've clarified it too much other than 
let's just say this, that game in Atlanta could end up being the deciding factor of whether the Pacers advance in this or not. So I think it's exciting that you and I wondered, I remember sitting uh, in the press conference room with you up actually at the table where Rick Carlisle was right when the schedule came out and wondering, is anybody going to care about this thing? Or how much are we going to care about this thing? And yes, when you win your first two, that helps. Um, but this has turned into, I think, a fairly significant storyline of the Pacers early season. I don't know if a lot still has to happen. And so we'll see how the knockout round play works and the, the Vegas games. But I don't know at this point if Adam Silver and everyone at the NBA that has been working on this and coming up with all of the details. I'm not sure if you ask them if, it, if they could take it how it is right now, if they could have diagrammed it any better. Totally if agree. If you're a fan of the NBA and you have been for 50 years, maybe you think the courts are a little too much. Or maybe it took you a while to really understand what does a pool play game mean compared to uh, a non-pool play game? And why why should I really care about these four games more than the others? I understand traditionalists, and I consider myself to be a little bit of a traditionalist. I also am an optimist, and I wanted to give this a chance. And I have been a part of the league now for long enough to know that while I love the start of a season, I've, I've felt – some letdowns in crowds in games in November and early December when football is at its peak and you still have such a long way to go until you really can look at standings and, and kind of project seedings and playoffs. So I felt like there was this gap in the schedule that needed a little juice. <laughs> and this is, this is juice. And then some, I mean, it, the, and, and I'll give the players a lot of credit too. I don't know that every team and every star is approaching this the same way, but I can tell you that the Pacers are approaching this like it really matters. And Tyrese Halliburton, he, it's one thing to say it, but I know he feels it. He said it last night in the locker room. I've never won. I've been never been in the playoffs. I've never been able to compete for a championship at this level, and it's been um, a while since he has – on the basketball court. He won a state championship in high school, but he craves that kind of championship. And all these guys, 98% of them played AAU basketball. And every weekend then you're going to try to win a trophy or a championship, whether it's the Peach Slam or you know all of the various different tournaments. And you could argue that once those are in the rearview mirror, they're not as important. This one, it's important, and whether it's the money that some have said, I think it's a little bit of just the prestige and being considered in that upper echelon and making an early season statement. Uh, this matters to the guys, and I'm already looking ahead to that game in Atlanta as some juice because I have, I have to go back to Philadelphia again. It was a game in November. It, it just felt different. And part of it was you just wanted to get another win. And, you know, being seven and four compared to six and five early in a season, it just feels a lot different. And so you wanted to be in that situation where you could close out a game. And so I think it might have felt at a, let's say, 
95% of what maybe a playoff game might have felt like anyways, and just in terms of the intensity, the urgency. But then this went all the way to that level. I mean, it, it really felt like, and it's, unfortunately it's been a few years now since I've been able to be courtside at a playoff game, but you know every possession matters. You're you're seeing all the timeouts. You're seeing the drama. <laughs> you're seeing referees give two extra free throws to the other team and, and wondering how you could possibly – uh, be getting the short end of the stick in a situation like this. <laughs> Everything that happens in a playoff game, we felt as Pacers broadcasters, and I'm sure many of you felt as fans on Tuesday night. And I think the in-season tournament aspect is adding to that. And so now you can think about that game in Atlanta as clinching. I took your word for it. I've, it all made sense. So I went with it on the post-game show about saying <laughs> that, that if you beat the Hawks, you're in the knockout stage. I want you to go back and clarify because I think I've got a pretty good handle on most of the in-season tournament. But the one thing that I'm not 100% certain on, but I think I have a, an idea, especially based on what you had just said, the four teams from the East that will play in the knockout round, I'm assuming they're all East games. So the three East pool play winners and the one wild card You'll play one of the other three. And then is it by record and point differential as to who the two hosts are? That's my understanding. And I'll, I admit I haven't all the way dug that far into it because I was just looking at it from the Pacers perspective, which, uh, by the way, I appreciate the level of trust that you have in me to just go with it <laughs> last night. Because I know I know I threw it out there. I'm like, this is going to be, you know, something that they might be like, let's let's make sure a, a statistical genius confirms this. So I appreciate it because <laughs> I am not that. Um, but I, I ran it by Wheat Hodgkiss, who is as close to a statistical genius as we have on staff. And he 100 percent agreed with it. So I was like 99.9 percent the way there. It's just so new. Right. I mean, all these scenarios you've just you've just never dug up before. But again, if the Pacers beat Atlanta, the Pacers will be three and zero with a game to go. And if you look at every other team in the group, Detroit's lost twice. So they're not catching you. They've already lost twice if you're three and zero. And all the other teams have one loss, which means even if the Pacers were to beat Atlanta, then lose to Detroit, they would be three and one. Detroit's got two losses. They're out. The other three teams, the best they can do is three and one. And you've beaten all of them. And head to head is the first tiebreaker amongst your group. So that's how the Pacers can clinch, uh, you know, a five team pool in just three games because they will have beaten the three top teams already in that scenario. And yes, my understanding is, first of all, if you're that wild card, so think of it as a, a one through four you know, maybe like how baseball used to do it, um, three yep. division winners and one wild card team, right? So the wild card team is the four seed regardless. They didn't win their group. And then uh, my understanding is it's point differential for the top two seeds, which then determine the tie break, which then determine the two home games. So if the Pacers go four and zero and another team goes four and zero and then another group winner goes three and one, the Pacers in that other four and zero team would host those two games. And then I think tiebreaker would be point differential to see who's the one and who's the two. So among the group winners, my understanding record first point differential second. So you can win your group and not host a knockout game. But if you win your group, that's how you have the opportunity to host that first knockout game, if that makes sense. And it does not matter if it's a division opponent and what would be a potential fifth game let's say in a season against the Bucks. you throw that out the window it's it's one of your 82 for sure 
but uh, there are going to be some other East teams that you only play three times to make up for the difference, correct? Yeah, and that's the quirk, and that's the part if you were to really pick one thing um, that you could, I think, uh, nitpick on this is the fact that it does slightly alter um, what your 82-game schedule could look like. Obviously, if you make the knockout round, you're going to be playing tougher competition than if you miss. But the idea mm-hmm. that you'd rather miss than make is also an incorrect one because to miss, to get those then easier you games, <laughs> you have to lose more in the first place, right? So you already have to lose the games to get there. So that doesn't make any sense. You know, there is a scenario, and I admittedly don't know it, and it involves, I think, if you play in the first knockout game and lose there is a scenario there where you could have 42 road or 42 home, I believe. Uh, I'll oh, need okay. to check in with resident expert Wheat Hotchkiss. And that is something where if that were to happen, you know, a scenario where – and it, it's unlikely, by the way. But there is a potential scenario where that could happen. If the Pacers end up playing 42 road games, like, that would kind of stink. I don't think they're necessarily, like, on the precipice of that happening. But I do think that is a possibility, and that's something that – future iterations of this you'd really love to get weeded out because to me the biggest strength of this and it's what i said in radio hits that i've done across our affiliate network is hey if you really hate this and if you really don't like it then don't pay attention to it these are still regular season games i know you can't not pay attention to the court but otherwise (laughs) these are still regular season games and they still matter toward the regular season and if you don't want to count if you don't want to pay attention to the side thing you don't have to but i do agree with your point I think the NBA can't be any happier. Maybe I'm overselling this because it's it's you know it's it's our world 24/7. Whereas Pacers fans, you know, being a fan is is your world maybe a little bit more part time than it is ours. But like I am really really looking forward to a Tuesday game in November on the road, and I can't ever say that I was really really looking forward to a weekday road game like I am this one coming up. And I think the NBA and Adam Silver have just done a magnificent job with this because there has been marketing and commercials to explain the tournament. They've done a good job, I think, of relaying messages to us so that we can relay them. The courts, I talked about this in a previous podcast, you might not like the vibrancy of them. I personally, I like most of them, really outside of the red ones. I didn't really care for Philadelphia's, but outside of the red ones, I kind of like them. But you need something to distinguish these games, and that's what they have. They have that with the courts, and then all the little details. I mean, even the shirts that the players are wearing before the games that, you know, say Indiana on one line, Pacers on the next, and basketball below it, those say in-season tournament, which I think is just such a cool touch. You you can't miss it. And for this to work, it it has to be obvious when these games are. And so I, I think the NBA has totally nailed this, as you said. There's not always a ton of interest in a regular season game in November. I think there is more interest now. And from the Pacers' perspective, look, had they lost those first two games, we're probably not talking about it very much. So there are teams around the NBA that are like, eh, in-season tournament doesn't apply to us really anymore. But for the teams that are still very much in the chase here, I think it's exciting. I think it's been a positive development. And again, when I think back to when you and I were talking doing that schedule release podcast up on the podium, I was wondering myself, how how much would I, you know, really care about this? And as it turns out, uh, you know, a fair amount. And, and I think the players across the board deserve credit for that, because I think for the most part, we've seen them care about this. And it's very obvious that the Pacers players and coaches care about it too. 
Yeah, good points all all the way around. And speaking of paying attention or caring, I found myself when they put the scores of the other in season tournament games on the on the big screen in Philadelphia. I wanted to see because I wasn't actively tracking at that point the Detroit game. I wanted to see the Atlanta Detroit score. I'm looking forward on Friday, even though the Pacers do control their own destiny. It's by far from a given to say that you're going to go to Atlanta and get that win. That'll be a big time challenge, but I'm interested to see what Cleveland or Philadelphia, I don't know yet who plays that night, but I'm interested to those games. And then even to take it another step, one of the things I loved about the first, let's say six, seven years that I had this position was in late March, looking at the standings, projecting a potential first round playoff matchup. So in some ways, you can still do that on the final day of the in-season tournament because the Pacers are going to play on Gold Friday. That'll be a great atmosphere, always is. And now it'll be the final in-season tournament game against Detroit. Even if you do beat the Hawks, as we've discussed, you'll want to then also beat the Pistons so that knockout round game is at home. And so there will be a big interest level in that. And then you'll be able to watch the next Tuesday as all of the other pools, you know, this is all speaking optimistically here, all the other pools figure out their seedings and their knock, their group play winner and then the wild card. And so it'll be fun to watch that Tuesday night, that last Tuesday uh, from our couch, or I don't even know where the schedule has us. I think, yeah, I think we're actually uh, going to be home that night and then leave the next day for a nice two-game series in Miami. So that'll be fun to watch all that. And then the next day, see – see the standings and the pairings and and the NBA will put a schedule out just like they do in the playoffs. So it just adds a lot. So kudos to all involved. Hopefully any kinks that they, that are there, maybe they could iron out, but uh, in general, I don't see too many things that I would change. So uh, I've enjoyed it. And uh, I think it is important to give the players credit too, for taking it seriously. And uh, another kind of cool dynamic of this is you weren't able to see this being at the game, but TNT actually cut in to Pacers and 76ers for the last couple minutes last night. Um, and you got to see that game end. And it was, you know, a cut in of live in-season tournament action, which is something they're trying to do a little bit more, which is, you know, something that the World Cup and these other uh, soccer leagues that have a, a similar in-season tournament that they do. So, yeah, I just think top to bottom You've got to have total buy-in to make this work, and so far they have, and so far it's been an intriguing uh, addition to the schedule in the season, and I think if if you're Adam Silver, I totally agree. This is about going, in my opinion, about best-case scenario that you could have hoped. Before we close this out, I I, I want to make a point here that I think um, these next three weeks or so are crucially important because you've started the season at seven and four, and To be honest, if you had offered me six and five, I probably would have taken it because, as I said, you've played six of your 11 games against the top four. So if you go, you know, if if you go two and four in that stretch and then you say you're able to go four and two in the uh, four and two in the other stretch or four and one in the other stretch, you're probably pretty happy with that. So I think seven and four, you can always be better record wise. But, you know, I'd give that record. Uh, B plus A minus so far. So I think you've set yourself, you know, in a really good foundation. But as I looked at the schedule, something really started to stand out to me. You're in a good spot at seven and four, and you've done that playing 
six games against the top four in the Eastern Conference already. From November 19th, which is the Pacers' next game against Orlando, all the way until Monday, December 11th, there is an eight-game stretch there where you don't play a team that made the playoffs outright without needing the in-season tournament over those next eight games and about three-week stretch. So you've started the season here strong. And if you can look at that eight-game stretch and if you could manage something even like six and two out of it. And look, it's not to say these are easy games by any stretch of the imagination. You've got two in Miami. And Miami technically didn't make the playoffs outright last year. But, of course, they went to the finals. So I'm not saying that this is you know, a cakewalk of a stretch of schedule here. But you've got four of the next five at home, Orlando, Atlanta, Toronto, Detroit, Portland, Miami, Miami, Detroit. If you can manage something like six and two during that stretch, which I think would be a really good outcome, all of a sudden you're 13 and six, closing in on the 20 game mark, closing in on mid-December, a ton of season still remaining. But if you're 13 and six, or even if you're 12 and seven, I think anything less than that would be disappointing. But if you're 12 and seven or 13 and six, then I think you put yourself in the position through about a quarter of the schedule to not only be really happy with where you are, but to you know kind of start to really cement yourself as a top six team. So I look at this after the Pacers seven and four start and say, this is your opportunity to really put pedal to the metal and gain um, some critical early season separation. When I spoke of learning from past experiences and taking some of the game-to-game adjustments and the different defensive and rebounding emphasis and learning from that later in the season, let's go back to a couple of games that I think will be fresh in the players' minds during the stretch of schedule. They will still bring up the Chicago and Charlotte game. It's fair to say you can't do that throughout the season. You can't always go back and and say, well, yeah, you should have won that game because there are going to be games, maybe technically you should have lost, that you won. But I do think it's fair to say you should have at least won one of those games because through 11 games, you look at the standings, and again, you, you probably shouldn't do that a lot right now, but it's crazy that two of your losses are to teams that are at the bottom and probably expected to be near the bottom for the whole season. Chicago and maybe to a lesser extent, Charlotte. So, and those were at home. So that can help you for this Orlando game. You've got the time off. You're going to be well rested. You cannot overlook Orlando. And then Atlanta, there will be no overlooking that. But then on the second half of the back to back, you don't want to lose to Toronto either. And then Detroit and Portland, because you lost those games to Charlotte and to Chicago you hope that can be a learning experience and that can put you in a position to get to what you're saying, the 13 and six. So am I correct in that game 20 of the season will be the yet to be scheduled game? 19th is the second Miami game. And that's where you're putting your benchmark. Um, let's see. So I'm, I'm putting the benchmark. Well, you know what, actually my, uh, my analysis is not a hundred percent correct because I was actually looking at the Detroit game one after Miami. So of the next eight scheduled games, oh, okay. yes. Gotcha. Uh, but but you're right. There there will be a couple in there. But even yes, even if you take a look at the next seven games, um, that's still true of the next seven. And then you'll play two in season tournament games, which will either be knockout or it'll be if you miss 
added games in the schedule and yes, you'll play Detroit. So uh, you are correct that the, the eighth against Detroit, technically not there, but regardless, I think you look at where the Pacers are on December 11th at the end of that night and feel like you're hopefully in the type of position by then it'll be game 21. You know, even if you could split the two games in those extra games in the in-season tournament, if you can go six and two, and again, the team can't think this way, right? Like this is something that, broadcasters and analysts and podcast hosts can talk about you have to keep the focus game to game but we can zoom out a little bit like this and say hey if you went six and two during that eight game scheduled stretch and then you maybe split the two in season tournament games you're looking at seven and three to go with seven and four you're 14 and seven that's a great spot to be by game 21 and i hope on december whatever that equals out on the on the calendar. I hope when we're talking around that time that the Pacers have taken advantage like that because the other reason is the schedule then does get much tougher once you turn the calendar year over. January's brutal. So I think end of November to mid-December is a portion of the schedule that's friendly and you could really lay down a good foundation here and give yourself a little buffer for when it gets more challenging in January. And so I, I, as you said you, a couple of weeks ago, you'd be anxious to see where this team is on November 9th. I'm kind of circling the night of December 11th, maybe at 10 p.m., seeing where the Pacers are is kind of my next check mark. Well, this is one other seed that I want to plan as what would be a crazy possibility. I thought the schedule uh, was very kind as kind as can be to have to play Miami twice in three nights, but to have three nights stay in Miami in December, not bad. Look at the pool play records right now. <laughs> what if the Pacers played the Heat three straight games with the third being <laughs> the the knockout round game? That would be something. And that is how rivalries uh, develop, bad blood. Uh, I'm not saying that I want that to happen. If it did so happen, though, that you're going to be on the road for a knockout game, I guess I would take that one and just to stay in Miami, right? (laughs) That would be fascinating. I'm almost positive in saying, I don't know, maybe you go back to like the 50s or whatever when they scheduled games. But in the modern day NBA, right, no way games ever played another team for three straight games. But yeah, you'll play in the 30th, the second. And you're right. Miami's 2-0, and I think. I don't have it in front yeah. of you, but I think they're 2-0 and in, yep. in there. The Pacers are 2-0. and So not out of the realm of possibility that that could be the 2-3 matchup. Who knows who's home? Maybe it's maybe it's in Miami and you've got three straight in Miami. Maybe they're coming up there. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating angle uh, that I hope we're talking about. And again, exactly. this game against Atlanta, it's, it's just so vital uh, for the Pacers to get there. They can make the knockout round without it. But the, the way that I would look at this is if the Pacers beat Atlanta, they're 100% in and they've won their group. And if they lose it, they've got a, a lot of work to do. Not a lot of work to do. They've got some work to do and they're going to need some help. And statisticians would probably put it at a little less than a coin flip chance if they miss. So you, from an in-season tournament perspective, as much weight as you're willing to put on the in-season tournament, which of course is just uh, your own volition, you can't get more important of a group play game than Tuesday is, is the bottom line with all this. Yep. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be fun. And it's been fun so far. I tweeted last night. It's just, it's hard. It almost is hard to believe Pat that we're just 11 games in because 
It feels like a little bit of a roller coaster, one that hasn't had too many down moments, but it has been a wild ride and it's been highly entertaining. And I think it's going to probably be like this all season long, especially with the way the Patriots play. It's fun to watch. You're on the edge of your seat. They're going to be in every game. There may not be as many blowouts just because there's a little bit of give and take right now with with the offense-defense situation, but uh, it's going to be fun, and we appreciate all the fans that listen and and follow and support, and we'll be back to bring you some more content. Maybe a couple special guests, hopefully, or at least one special guest for next week's pod. Yeah, in fact, we're entering a stretch here of four days without a game that will be the Pacers' longest stretch without playing of the year save the All-Star break. And we certainly hope that plenty of Pacers are involved in the all-star break. So it's you can make a case right now, again, depending on when you're listening, that this is, uh, you know, the best chance for the Pacers to recoup that they will have all season. Um, and maybe you wish that wasn't in November. But regardless, it's an opportunity with four of the next five at home coming up. Um, it's a real opportunity, you know, to to start to string together some wins and to give yourself some buffer on potentially even the play-in rounds. I just firmly believe you're going to look back at late November through mid-December and view it as a massive stretch in whether the Pacers were able to get to where they want to get to or whether they're fighting an uphill battle perhaps because they didn't take advantage of it. And you've got the opportunity listening here at home or in your car to make an impact on that because these home games are coming up the 19th versus the magic, the 22nd versus the Raptors, the 24th versus the Pistons, the 27th versus the trailblazers. These are home games. End of November. You've got family in town around Thanksgiving. Uh, the Thanksgiving holiday is sandwiched by a couple paces, home games. They're always an enjoyable environment. Um, come out and support the team. Of course, school Friday deals will be coming up here sooner rather than later too. So, Uh, Come out to Gainbridge Fieldhouse. Say hello if you see us. Uh, We would love to see you all in person at Pacers.com slash tickets. For JJ, I'm Pat. That'll wrap up this week's sideline, guys. Powered by Gainbridge.